Thessalonians. We sort of finished 1 Thessalonians, not exactly. Brother Chuck got long-winded <clears throat> last week. It's just a malady he's prone to, not I. But he, anyway, we didn't finish, he didn't finish the last chapter, so he will get to it next week, but we're starting 2 Thessalonians um, today, and I'll tell you why. Look, it. we try to keep each other posted, he and I, on, on where we're going to leave off, so he, he texted me a couple weeks ago. He said, I'm planning on finish, finishing 1 Thessalonians last week. You can start 2 Thessalonians, to which I said, okay. And I studied the chapter and all the rest. Then he calls me and he says, you know, I, perhaps you noticed I didn't finish 1 Thessalonians, so maybe you want to finish it up. What are you talking about? I already did my homework. I did my study and, and all the rest. And so um, uh, he's going to backtrack for us next week because, because he did not use his time wisely. <clears throat> That's, you know, how I see it. But we're pressing on. Now, when we finish 2 Thessalonians, there's three chapters in it. We're going to do Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. And the reason we're going to do it is, well, I'll tell you why. Chuck and I, were getting older, and we've given up on being good and relevant and uh, effective. But we decided, but we could be unique. And therefore, we chose Deuteronomy because nobody has ever studied it in the history of humankind. Seriously. So we're going to be the, you know, people do interesting things, lessons from the cage, you know, and all this stuff. Yeah, but we're doing Deuteronomy. So that'll be whenever we finish Second Thessalonians, which we're going to look at today. So uh, why did Paul find it necessary to write a second letter to the same people group? They're called Thessalonians. They live in a place called Thessalonica. Paul uh, started the church there on his second missionary journey. He wrote them a letter, and now it's about a few months, just a few months after he sent the first letter, he sends the second. Here's the reason. What he wrote about in the first letter, the circumstances he addressed are getting worse, and the circumstances he addressed are persecution of the believers in Thessalonica. He addressed many things, but that was a major theme. They were beginning to be persecuted because they called themselves Christians, followers of Jesus. Well, things have not gotten better. They've really gotten worse. And he feels they need encouragement in dealing with it. And so that's one of the principal reasons for which he wrote this second letter. It's written in about A.D. 51 or 52. So think about it. It's almost 2,000 years old. We are, we are getting to look at a correspondence that's o- almost 2,000 years old. There's no explanation for how we have it preserved accurately down to this very day, except God has uh, superintended the preservation of his word. It's not good enough for God to just have given us his word if it has gotten distorted over the millennia, but it hasn't. He has overseen it, and what we're reading today is the letter which Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. So here we go, verse 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. So you've heard about these three. Of course, you know of Paul, outstanding, unique, uh, specially gifted, but even one such as Paul saw the need to work as a team. 
There's no such thing as a lone ranger in the Christian life. I get nervous about ministers who think they can do it alone. None of us is the total package. We all need one another. In fact, that phrase, one another, is one you find frequently in the Bible. God did not save us into a vacuum. He saved us into a family. So the people who say, I believe in Jesus, but I don't have to go to church. Well, in a sense, you don't have to, but it ought to be a want to, because not only has our relationship with him changed upon conversion, so too has our response to like-minded other Christians. We're supposed to be developing our one another relationships. And so Paul always exemplified this. He, he wasn't a lone ranger. And so he worked closely in this case with Silvanus and Timothy. They were mentioned in his first letter. Uh, they are all three serving together. And right now they're in a place called Corinth. And it's from Corinth that this letter was written. So it's Paul in association with these other co-laborers writing a letter from Corinth to the church of the Thessalonians. It had their name on it, but the distinguishing characteristic of their church is found in the next words, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in Paul's introductory words, he provides an encouragement to persecuted Christians. Can you see where it says God our Father? When he began 1 Thessalonians, he used the phrase, God the Father. In this case, he uses the phrase, God our Father. He wants to enhance in their minds the notion that no matter what happens, they still belong to Almighty God. He is their Father. He's aware of what they're going through. He has authority. He's concerned about them. He will use what they're going through for good. He will intervene. He will do the things a father does. He will provide. He will uh, protect. Paul is saying, you are in trouble for sure, but you're also in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And folks, sometimes the best we can offer one another during hopeless times is, uh, is this kind of thing. No matter what happens circumstantially, In spite of all of the ups and downs and changes of our lives, the constant, that which will never change, is our in Christness. And so it says in the Bible, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Do you know where that's found? Yeah, it's in Romans, absolutely, Romans 8. Nothing can separate. Paul, you know what Paul is essentially saying? I, I, I can't change your circumstance. There are forces that are more powerful than me. Uh, He's essentially saying, um, I'm not really hopeful that things are going to change for the better. Evil and ungodliness is on the rise. You're in the midst of it. I can't make promises like politicians do uh, uh, of of magnificent change. I, I, I can't dupe you and I can't deceive you into thinking that that I or anyone else has the power to change society, the culture, the government, and all of the pressure you're under. So instead of doing that, can I just enhance uh, what's, what's true of you and that no one can take away from you? You are in God, who happens to be our Father 
and also the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is, that is a constant. Folks, at times that's, a, that's, that's, that's the best we can offer to one another. Uh, hope in the uh, constancy of, of the relationship. And so um, Paul goes on to say in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants them to know that those two valuable commodities, grace and peace, have a source. And the source is God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying, uh, let me spare you the efforts. Do not look for grace and peace in uh, any other way except through God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's an important message for us. You know, we're uh, in a time of election and all the rest, and we ought to be actively engaged, reflective, thoughtful, studying, praying who would be the best candidate, you know, all that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm for that. Uh, but I would be very, very careful about misdirected hope, either in politics or economics or all the rest. None of those are the sources of grace and peace. They haven't been. They, they are not going to be. In fact, I'm finding it very interesting. Now, here I'm going to get in a little trouble, and yet I seem not to care. Um, (laughs) I find it to be a sociologically interesting phenomenon to see who the front-runner of the selection of Republican candidates is. Uh, I'm not telling you what to do, who to vote for, anything. I'm, I'm making an observation. It's fascinating to me uh, that Donald Trump is the front runner. Now, you may think he ought to be. Don't, don't, I'm not challenging you there. What, what I'm noticing is this. When a voting constituency of either party loses hope in the process, generally they're prone to choose someone as their favorite candidate who's not part of the system. That's when extremism uh, takes place. So I'm surely not insinuating Donald Trump is like, say, an Adolf Hitler or Benito Mussolini. But these people also were uh, foisted uh, up as the likely saviors of a sagging economy and immorality and all the rest. And it's a barometer of what the voting constituents, constituency is thinking. And essentially what they're saying is, I don't trust the system, I'm not hopeful, I'm angry, I'm cynical, I'm just going for someone who's so out of the mold. Uh, Vicariously, that person is essentially speaking to the system the things I want to say. I want someone who's gruff and rough and unpolished and undiplomatic and not politically correct because I'm sick of it all. I just want my anger and disdain and hopelessness to come out. So that Donald Trump, who has no uh, legitimate experience, in my opinion, preparing him for the highest office of the land, is now by far the Republican front runner. But do not be in despair because he's a man of the Bible. (laughs) I mean, he he just said this. You got to believe it, what people say. What's your favorite book? He was asked. He said, well, next to the one I wrote. 
after the one I wrote, uh, the, my first favorite, that's my second, The Art of the Deal, his second favorite, his first favorite, the Bible. Then he was asked, well, what's your favorite verse from the Bible? Well, that's personal. <laughs> no. So here's the deal. Salvation has to be personally experienced, but then it is to be publicly expressed. When someone says that's personal and private, and it's, they don't have it ready to be given away, I uh, suspect they don't have it. So, so uh, he said the, uh, he spoke about meaningful church attendance 20 years ago or more under the ministry of Dr. Norman Vincent Peale. Perhaps some of you are familiar with him. Very few of us today would consider Dr. Peale, who's deceased, to have been a uh, very keen biblicist. He was more of a uh, cheerleader, a positive thinker, human potential kind of a kind of a guy. And uh, uh, I didn't say that, but yes, you're correct. <laughs> Absolutely. An older version of, yes. But any, uh, anyway, um, so I'm thinking if you're a person of the Bible, I would hope you're having a more contemporary, vibrant experience in a fellowship of like-minded believers, not one decades ago from someone who was suspect theologically. And at the least, one could say, though he stated the Bible is his favorite book, at the least one could say he hasn't been very successful in living in a way that's consistent with its teachings. So I'm uh, not suggesting you shouldn't vote for him. I'm suggesting your interest in him, if you have it, it's probably due to your own disgust with what has been rather than your esteem for the man. Because if you study his positions, uh, you're in for quite an interesting study because they change just about every three and a half minutes. Um, His positions are evolving, evolving, even as we, as we speak. I would be very, very careful. Now, the same is true on the other side, on the uh, more progressive, less conservative side. There seems to be an interest in perhaps seeing as a viable candidate someone who's an avowed socialist uh, from you know, New England, Bernie Sanders. Now, you'd vote for who you want. I, I'm not exactly criticizing a candidate. I'm making an observation, and that is... When a voting constituency is ready to cost caution to cast caution to the wind, it's usually because they've just thrown their hands up in dismay and cynicism and hopelessness. And they're just going for someone who's so much out of the box. It's almost a statement. Our uh, society, not just ours, worldwide, is rife with susceptibility for the next impressive evil world leader, an anti-Christian kind of a person. Uh, You say, how far-fetched is that? Folks, it's happened before. Uh, It can happen. And and so these things really concern me uh, quite a bit. But but here's the deal. Um, Vote, study, make the best decision. By the way, I think... uh, I'll tell you who I think the best candidate for president is. I'm just going to tell you. The best candidate for president is one who will never get elected. (laughs) 
because the voting constituency doesn't want that one. I actually don't have one in mind. I was just baiting you. I'm, I'm just saying uh, the candidate who reflects a godly value system, that's the one we really need, uh, uh, we don't want, um, as is reflected in the last several elections. The voting constituency has chosen candidates uh, to high even the highest political office, with a very noticeable anti-biblical perspective. Uh, I think God has given us whom we deserve. Therefore, I'm praying that God next would give us who we do not deserve. That's my prayer. God, please don't give us who we deserve. No uh, candidate in recent years has foisted forced himself upon the highest office in the land. Each has been duly elected. So if you want, you can target the one in the White House. You could do that. Uh, But you should look in the mirror, maybe not you personally, but the American voting constituency has chosen uh, whom they want to represent them. We've not yet had a coup in this country. uh, We might, but we've not yet had... We've not yet had that. So the real issue is not the particular person. It's that the particular person is found to be so suitable as a leader, in some cases not, not even after one term of dismal uh, presidency, but then two. Um, I'm mentioning no names. <clears throat> I don't have to. I, I'm just saying... Uh, If anyone is hopeful about the political process as that which is going to change the tide, uh, it might be misdirected hope. You see, this verse says grace and peace are sourced, not in a politician. They're sourced in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul is offering that to a society uh, much like ours. Uh, Today's not new. Uh, godless, immoral, blatantly anti-Christian. Paul is offering this to Christians. He's not saying it will get better. We'll have a new administration. The economy is on the rise. He's not saying any of that. He's saying, please remember, you're in Christ Jesus, and he is the source of grace and of peace. If your hope is in uh, economics, then you, you have a lot of faith, I would say misdirected. I'm not a prophet of doom by no means, but if you're not anticipating a coming economic collapse, you're living in a different world than I am. I don't mean just because of our mismanagement. I mean because internationally every country is affected by what happens in another. Uh, China pulled some fast ones the other day, and the stock market internationally, you know, just plummeted for crying uh, out out loud. Uh, It's very fickle, isn't it? I made the mistake in the last class of saying it's as fickle as a a moody woman. Yeah, but but I've repented. I will never say that again. (laughs) No, I mean, look, let's be honest. My wife today was unbelievably pleasant. Everything was cool, all the rest. But it's possible when, when we are reunited later today... You know, I'll put my arm around her and she may say, get your hands off of me. I'm telling you, it's just, you know, it's like the stock market. I'm telling you, you know who you are. I'm just trying to be, um, yeah. 
So uh, I didn't say we shouldn't be wise and stewards. Listen here. You, both po- political parties are to blame for the curse they have financial curse they're putting on this next generation of kids and our kids and grandkids. The indebtedness, it cannot even be approached. And the indebtedness is to a hostile creditor. Uh, come on. Uh, you, if you, I think we're, we're, it's an economic house of cards. So um, why am I sharing all this? Because um, I'm disgusted with life and I want you to join me. No, it's not that. It's not that. I just don't want us to have misdirected hope. I just want us to have our hope in the right place. I don't want us, you know, all of our politicians that is running for office, any party, they say things they can't be, they can't seriously believe themselves. <laughs> They're making promises to save us from things. If they had those capacities, why didn't they demonstrate these miraculous capabilities when they served in lower offices you know all these people served in lower offices they didn't do so hot they didn't make the world a better a better place now how could they how could they make promises of doing better in a higher responsibility position i'm telling you the candidate i'm going to vote for male or female the one who says folks let me be honest the world is a mess it's a mess because we've messed it up in fact, it's so messed up, the mess we made, we cannot resolve. There's really nothing I could do. So my promise to you is I'll just do my best not to make it worse. Yeah, you got my vote. That's the first honest politician in the history of humankind. Come on, don't make these promises you can't keep. And by the way, even if you could pull it off, where are you getting the money for it? Me. You. You got enough of our money for crying out loud. That's not fixing all kinds of stuff because the money is going to create more bureaucratic government. Folks, our government is meant to public public servants is supposed to serve us. But they're fail- we can't even get the stinking road work started out there. You know, we announced to you a month ago, don't use used road. We want to give you a heads up, use the other deal. Well, now we look kind of stupid. They're not doing anything on used road. You know why? Because the stinking local government can't get it together. Do you know what it took to build this building, this facility? The inspections into this and that. Unbelievable. The only way we got it done is we bribed them. <laughs> we got it from the mission's budget. We just, no, we didn't do that. We were not tempted towards bribery. We were tempted towards Murder. I mean, you're kidding me. What are you doing? Why are you jacking us around over this, that, and the other? It's totally out of control. I'm, just make sure hope is in the right place. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. I believe things are going to get much worse before they get eternally better. But even as they get much worse, watch God use all things for the good. I didn't say abandon the ship and... And don't be a good citizen. I didn't say anything like that. I'm just saying, let's not offer more than what Paul did. He didn't say it'll work out. Did you know these bad guys are passing away? He didn't say anything. He just reminded them of what they had in Christ. And then he says something else. Verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting. Why? Because your faith, that could be translated faithfulness. Because your faithfulness is greatly enlarged. And the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. This is 
classic Pauline motivational stuff. Paul always starts with commendation way before criticism. It's a good technique. Before we move in to point out what's wrong in someone's life, we ought to focus on what's right. That's what he's doing. You know what he said? In 1 Thessalonians, I wrote to you about growing in the faith. In 2 Thessalonians, I'm telling you, you done did it. You're growing in the faith. By the way, faith is a, has a dynamic. It's, a, it's like a living entity. If our faith in Christ Jesus is stagnant or uh, declining, I, I, it, I, it's possible it's not real faith. A living thing grows. I don't mean we don't stumble and fall from time to time, but the direction of our lives ought to be, if we're God's people, more and more in the direction of Godwardness, godliness. You see what I mean? And so Paul is saying, that's true of you. Your faith is being enlarged. And then he said, it's not only your faithfulness to God vertically, it's also being translated into your growing faithfulness to one another horizontally. And that has to work. If someone says, I believe in Jesus, you know, I, I, my faith in him is intact. But that person's a creep to other believers, argumentative, divisive, no relational uh, skills, aggressive, obnoxious, you know, all the rest. There's also reason to question, why are you not getting better in relating to fellow Christians? It's a package deal. If we're right with our Father, we have to be increasingly right with everybody who are, who's part of the family, brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says, you Thessalonians are getting it together. Therefore, he says, verse 4, we ourselves, we speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Folks, they were going through rough times like many Christians are today. They could have caved in and compromised. Paul said, you didn't. You're looking it in the face and you're standing strong. You know, every time they do a survey of so-called Christians with regard to uh, same-gender marriage, a higher percentage of so-called Christians express their support for it. Did you know that? Uh, Those are folks, unlike the Thessalonians, who are caving in. Those are folks who are letting their uh, morality be shaped by majority rule instead of by scriptural dictate. The scriptures with regard to marriage have never changed, though society is. Our privilege and responsibility is to stay strong, clinging to the unchangeable moral prescriptions in the Bible in spite of what's happening in the surrounding society. Paul says, you Thessalonians did that very thing. You remained true to the faith even in light of your persecutions and afflictions. And then he says in verse 5, all this is a very plain indication of God's righteous judgment. That sort of means of the fact God didn't make a mistake. So that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. What does all that mean? Paul is not saying by being worthy you earn your salvation. He's saying by standing strong in the faith, you reveal it. And you reveal that God was right in saving you. So 
One of the worst things when one is suffering is to suffer in vain, without senselessly or without purpose. Uh, you go through a time and you don't see any good thing coming from it that makes it worse. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. God's hand is in it. Because when you suffer in the name of Christ Jesus, you give evidence to your, there's evidence given to yourself that you are in Christ Jesus. Why would they be targeting you unless you belong to him whom they are really targeting? Why should the student have it any better than the teacher? If they hated him, why shouldn't he hate those who follow him? If you're being hated for following him, there's a purpose to it, and the purpose is to give you evidence of the fact you are his. The world would leave you alone if you belong to the world. Since you belong to Jesus, by his righteous judgment, designation of you as his, they're going to target you. But not only that. The fact that you stand up under it is more evidence of God's powerful work in your life because you don't have a natural capacity to withstand this terrible persecution. You would compromise, renounce your faith, and turn from it, but for God's enabling spirit in you. Not only is this persecution evidence of your salvation, it's evidence of the Savior's supply in you to help you deal with your salvation. So all these things Paul is saying looks like the absence of your father when really it's evidence of the presence of your father in the midst of all this. What good is it to have a faith that can't stand the test? Someone said a faith untested ought to be a faith untrusted. Someone professes Christ but caves in at the first hint of societal pressure. It, there's reason to believe that person's faith is not worth very much. Paul is saying you are proving yourselves to be truly redeemed by standing firm in the midst of this persecution, it being an evidence of the fact that God is empowering you to do so. A, a muscle uh, unexercised atrophies. So to faith unexercised does not grow. Paul is saying, no, no, no. God is allowing this to happen so that you can exercise your faith muscles and find out with his strength you can make it. So that's essentially, I think, what he's saying there. And then in verse 6, for after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So this is all part of what Paul referred to as God's righteous judgment. He made no mistake in choosing you to be his and even to suffer in his name. And you also have to know part of his righteous judgment will befall those who are afflicting you. Now, some here say, wait a second, I thought God was merciful. Well, he is. He's merciful to those who are his, but he's also merciful to those who are persecuting those who are his. But if those who need his mercy refuse it, then the only option is to make do with his justice. That's, that's how it works. ISIS is beheading Christians, doing horrific things. 
Do you know we are responsible for praying uh, for the members of ISIS? Did you know that? That they might be recipients of God's mercy so that he could receive glory in converting the soul of someone as desperately wicked as that. And, and, and so God's mercy is available not only for those who are his, but also for those who persecute his. But if they refuse his mercy, Paul is offering this as an encouragement to persecuted Christians, then all that's left is God's judgment. Now, folks, some here are offended by that. So they say, oh, no, God's like he's a God of love, God of love. Yeah, let me tell you something. You could not live in a world. You would go crazy. If you lived in a world without the expectation of good being rewarded and evil being punished. You may say you just want God to be a flower child, you know, no hell, no sin, no the blah, 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 blah. But you would jump ship, you'd kill yourself, and you'd get out of this reality. You could not live in a world without the expectation that good is going to be rewarded and evil is going to be is going to be punished. So the most gentle and, you know, hippie-like amongst you is very inconsistent because you demand justice be done. And God says there will be justice. So here's the deal. Sin will either, you want justice? Sin will either be judged in you for your own sin or in Jesus Christ for your sin. Those are the options. And if he's rejected as the sin bearer, then you must bear your own sin. That's not God's imposition on you. That's God giving you what you demand. So Paul is saying to a persecuted and afflicted body of believers, do you think for one minute your father is not taking note of this? And do you think he will not deal with those one day who afflict you? But it's not only that. He'll do something else for you. Verse 7. And to give relief, your translation might say rest, and to give rest or relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. See that great word relief or rest? It's used with reference to a bow string. Can you imagine an archer? Pulls back the bow and, you know, there's tension on this arm uh, until the archer releases it. That's the notion. We Christians are under pressure and tension until the time of the return of the Lord Jesus, and then boom, and then there's rest and relief. That's, that's kind of, so Paul is saying, you know what he's saying? I can't tell you that your present circumstance is going to be appreciably improved. I can give you, however, future hope. There will be a day when the judge of all the earth will judge sinners, He came the first time to judge sin in himself. He will come the second time to judge sinners. Paul is offering that as future hope. And then he also says it's not just that. That's when I can promise you there will be relief. That's when there will be rest. It's at the second coming of Christ. Now, when is that? Well, that's where we Christians differ. Okay, we discussed that already in prior weeks. This is a reference to the second coming of Christ. By the way, there's nothing subtle about it because it says he will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. That's not a sneak up on you kind of a thing. That's a in-your-face kind of a thing. So that is a huge, huge event. And with Paul, he's not making any promises he can't keep. 
He's saying, I promise you that the Lord will keep his promise. He's coming again. He will be revealed from heaven. That's where he is. <laughs> he will come from there. And he will uh, judge sinners. And he will provide relief for those who are his. And then it says, when he comes, this is what will happen, verse 8. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God. Now, how could God judge people who don't know him? No, no, no. This means voluntary ignorance. This does not mean, I knew nothing about you. I see no evidence of you, God. You didn't, you didn't give me any evidence. No, 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 no. These are people ignoring the evidence. They don't know God. That is an intellectual deficit. It's a moral deficit. They don't know God is Lord, his master, deserves respect, is holy, is the one with whom we have to make do. They've acted as if they don't know God, but they do. So he will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's kind of what it, what it says there. Pretty stiff, for sure. And what will happen to them? Well, verse 9. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Now, that's a kind of an unusual phrase. When you think of destruction, you think of something that takes place as an event. You want to destroy, let's say, the garage in your backyard to replace it with another. You knock it down. It's destroyed. But this gives the indication that destruction is not an event that begins and ends. It's a process that endures through eternity. Eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, what is that all about? How could God do such a thing as that? Now, wait just a second. Um, there's something about God, and that is he will not contravene our choices. If you make a choice, you're free to make it. But then the consequence is yours and mine as well. It's the thing about God. He's given us free will. He does not determine our behavior. Sometimes I've said to God at weaker moments, God, why'd you make us this way? You know, all this free will stuff, it's not cracked up to be all it's supposed to be. Why'd you entrust free will? We don't make good choices. Why can't you just impose your will upon us and then for sure we'll be doing the right thing? Well, the answer is the reason why God does not impose himself upon us is that he wants us to choose to obey him, not be obligated to obey him. He's not a dictator. He's an Abba Father. And so he wants his manifested love for us to constrain our behavior. In response to his love for us, he wants us to do the right thing. It's not a have to. It's a want to. So if people choose to do what they want to do, this side of heaven, God will allow it to continue throughout eternity. So if people in essence say now, God, I don't like you being present in my life. I'm going to therefore act as if you are absent, as if you do not exist. Then God, I think quite sadly, will give those people what they've demanded. And that's why it says they'll pay a penalty of eternal dying away from the presence of the Lord. They didn't want his presence. They shall not have his presence. Now, why is that hell? If God is the source of the satisfaction of all of our needs, and if we are separated from the source of the satisfaction of all of our needs, that means the needs continue eternally without being satisfied. That's hell. 
Look, are you hungry? You're probably getting hungry. It's lunchtime. You know, you're thinking about, when is this guy going to stop wrapping up there? I'm biting into my cheeseburger. I'm dying here. What if it was a prolonged hunger? A day, two, three. But it's not killing you. You're each, that's, that's my pocket going off. <laughs> um, it's prolonged hunger. You can't even resolve it by dying from it. It persists. So do you. And so does your unsatisfied need for food. Now, deepen it to spiritual. That's a material, a physical need. What about spiritual needs that God intends to meet? If we're separated from him, then the needs continue. They persist, but they never are satisfied. Folks, that is like eternal destruction. Now, that may be a distasteful notion, but you can't make sense of eternal life unless you allow for eternal dying. There's no no light unless there's darkness. There's no good unless there's evil. There's no hard unless there's soft. There's no weak unless there's strong. You can't can't possibly buy into eternal life unless you know there's the other option, eternal dying. You can't say, oh, God, I love you for eternal life. I'm a little put off by you for eternal dying. That's the way it is. You can't enjoy the concept of eternal life unless you can entertain the other reality, which is eternal destruction. And this says to persecuted Christians, I know it looks to you like evil is going unchecked. Not true. When Jesus returns, he'll put a check on it. Justice will be served. And when Jesus returns, the pressure on you will be released. But not entirely until that, until that uh, happens. And so it says in verse 10, when, not if, when he comes to be glorified in his saints. Did you, did you know Christians, that we're saints? I know certain people, you know, designate some because of their noble deeds to sainthood. Um, uh, that's not the biblical notion. A saint is a separated one. Every Christian is made separate for the glory of God. So this is referring to Christians. When he comes to be glorified in his followers, in Christians. How is he going to be glorified through one such as you and I? See, that's the point. Look at us. I mean, not the way we look. We look good. But we're not good. You know, everything about it is just a cover-up, right? Clothes is just, clothes is the biggest deception. That's not the way we look. I'm grateful for clothes. (laughs) Please keep using them. But we don't look as good without clothes as we, I mean, you know, let's just, I'm probably getting into areas I shouldn't get into. Our hearts are not right. Do you know what comes naturally to us? Selfishness. Can I tell you something? I couldn't care less about what happens to you apart from Christ. I have no interest in sacrificing anything that I find to be of value in order to meet your needs. No. If I do, it's forced. It's not true. The truth is I'm stuck on me 
And not only that, I really love sin. So do you. I just love it. it makes you feel good. There's pleasure in it. All the rest. That's, that's who I am. That's who, that's who you are. Um, but God took us. You, you know what else? You can't break a bad habit. <laughs> you know, you, you make a New Year's resolution that lasts for three and a half days. Or so. You can't. If you're, if, you're, if you're involved in some addiction, alcohol or drugs or sex, you can't stop it. If you're hooked on pornography, you're not getting yourself off it. It's not happening. And if you do, you're going to substitute another addiction. It's called symptom substitution. You're never going to solve the underlying issue because you're the underlying issue. And then you accepted Jesus as your Savior. You said, come into my life. Forgive my sin. Change me from the inside out. And he said, okay. And he did. And you find yourself to be being made differently. Not overnight, but you're different. Now your taste for booze is different. And your, your taste for drugs is different. It's still there. But you have a power to say no you never had before. And, and, you're, and, you're, and your eyes are being put to different targets now. And, and, and if you fall upon a pornographic thing on your computer, that's attractive to you. Something, there's like a voice. It's like an in-house preacher saying, no, no, no. You're better than that. I want better for you. You, you. you just can't. You're not enjoying sin the way you used to do it. You're not. Something in you has taken away your taste for sin to such a degree that now you want to turn from You give into it from time to time. I got that. But mostly you want to turn from it rather than to give into it. And... This selfishness, this self-centeredness, my goodness, that's even being reduced. And you find yourself investing in the lives of other human beings, folks who are not you. You find yourself interested in giving and doing and serving. Holy Toledo. And when Jesus returns... He will be glorified in his saints for that reason. Because he has taken folks with no potential to be holy. And he is providing us with a holy lifestyle, the likes of which we could not take credit for. The human potential movement is sweeping, has swept already across many of our churches and our schools. That's when you tell students, students, believe in yourself. That's when you tell them. Believe in yourself. And you say to them, you can be anything you want to be. Just set your mind on it. That's called the human potential movement, meaning you have inherent human potential to be anything. No. If human potential is left unchecked, it will be potential to cut off people's heads and rape 12-year-old girls because they don't bow before Allah. Here's your human potential. It'll be your, your potential to be one of the 33 million who signs up for the escort service. You want to see you? It'll be it'll be it'll be potential to to foist the curse of indebtedness upon the next generation without any insinuation of putting it in check. You want your human potential? It'll be potential to to put six million Jews in ovens. It'll be the potential to slaughter millions of people in Cambodia under Pol Pot. It would go on and on. You want your human potential? Here's your human potential.
No, I don't want human potential. I want God's spirit to indwell me. And I want to get out of the way. So the potential of a Holy Spirit can be unbridled and fully manifest in my life to such an extent that when he comes, he will be glorified in a one-time sinner, now a saint such as me. And you want the same thing. And you don't have anything to do with it. It's not discipline. It's not stick It's not your New Year's resolutions. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see the difference? So, so, so Paul is, and you know what he says to them? And not only that, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. When Jesus comes, he will be marveled at by everyone. No, 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 no. Among all who have believed. Listen to me. I know Jesus is Savior. So do you. But I don't know him that much. Creative people uh, try to depict him. I'm in favor of it. Capture him on canvas or in music. Wonderful, beautiful. But we don't come close. When he returns and we stand in his midst, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to marvel in his presence. You know what Paul is saying to persecuted, troubled Christians? I can't make you promises that things are going to get better here, but I give you future hope. You will be glorified. The Lord will be glorified through his transformation in your life. He made you a new creation. You didn't create yourself. He recreated you. And you will marvel. You know what I think will happen when we see Jesus? I think we're going to fall. I think our head's going to be to the ground. We won't even look at him. Then I think he's going to say, what's up with you? I think he's going to say, stand up. Children don't cower in fear before their daddy or their mommy. I think he's going to say, stand up. That's what he was always telling people in the, in the Old Testament. You know, they're always falling down. He was always saying, stand up and be strong. I think he's gonna, you, know what he, you know what I think he's going to invite us to do? Crawl up on his lap. Hey, let me go first. They don't take too much room. Just a little guy. You know what I mean? Let me go. It won't kill you. We're going to crawl on. We're not going to cower in fear. I don't fear the wrath of God. No, no, no. no. When he comes, there'll be release. Really? It's the absence of tribulation and fear. He'll be, thank you for coming. Thank you. Wow. We're going to marvel, marvel. Our, our, our most imaginative, glorious expectation of what it'll be like to be in his presence will pale in comparison to the genuine article. And Paul says, I got nothing to offer you about the world becoming a better place. It's not. But I can tell you this. The world is a passing place. And your reality is going to be glorious and one in which you marvel. Now, he wasn't saying, be so heavenly minded, you know earthly good. He was saying all the more, be salt, be light, do the best you can. I can prove this to you. Verse 11, to this end, also we pray for you always. Pray what? That our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith. Paul says, in light of future realities, I want you to serve. I, I, I want you to fulfill your calling and, uh, and uh, the things that are good. I want you to, God, to help you work the works of faith. Is Paul saying, when he says, we pray that God would count you worthy of your calling, is Paul saying, your behavior is what will get you saved? Oh, no, 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 no. He's saying, God's grace got you saved. Your behavior gives evidence of it. You know what Paul is saying? I just want you to live up to who you already are. By the way, that's the best way to motivate someone. Paul does it all the time. 
He simply reminds them of what's already true. You're already called. You're already saved. You're already sanctified. You're already set apart. He is saying, I just want you to live worthy of it. I don't want you to live under your status. He's not saying, I want you to become someone worthy of God so that you will be saved. He's saying, because God has pronounced you to be worthy. Live that way. You know what the Bible says? You're a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. It doesn't have a list of conditions. If you do this, if you do that. No, no, no. That's just a pronouncement of what's true. Paul is saying persecution and suffering is a reality you face. I got that. I can't do a thing about it. But this is also true. You've been saved, redeemed, set apart, adopted into God's family, live in that light, even in the midst of a sin-sick, increasingly anti-God, anti-Christian world. Just live up to your calling. Why? Verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him, and all this according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There it is again. Folks, um, the transformation of the believer now and to come that redounds to the glory of God is not sourced in anything in us, in our government, in our schools, in our economy, in our churches. It's all sourced in the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to pull it off. He's going to finish the work which he began in us. And when all is said and done, what he has said and done will prevail. When ISIS and Boko Haram and all the rest, and corrupt government officials even in our own midst, all the rest, when all this stuff is said and done, what Jesus has said and done will prevail. That gives us hope to get out of bed tomorrow morning and press on in spite of all the horrific things that are transpiring in our day. And even in the horrific things, our Father neither slumbers nor sleeps. He's not asleep at the wheel. He's orchestrating everything and using it for his grand and glorious purposes. And every time someone persecutes a Christian, that person is providing God with more justifiable reason to deal out retribution. You see what I mean? No one will hold God to be unjust because he will say, did you see how you treated my son, my daughter, so on and so forth. Everything that we go through is purposeful and everything we go through one day will redound to the glory of God. He's a non-issue in the lives of many today who wish for him to be absent, not present. And for them, who do not repent, he will grant them their heart's desire. They will suffer the throes of eternal uh, absence from the uh, separation from the presence of God. But for all those who by God's grace have been able to turn to him in repentance and confession, relief, rest, glory, and we will marvel in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ now and forevermore. So we have work to do. And part of it is not to, to be overcome <laughs> by evil, but to overcome evil with good. And that, that's what Paul's prayer was. So, Lord Jesus, we have our marching orders. We have our assignment. We've been given our talk, a bit of a pep talk from Paul. It's legitimate. Thank you that Paul did not overstate the case. He gave no guarantee of change in circumstance. 
No, instead he declared once again the constancy of your presence and good purposes no matter what we go through. And then he stated this race which we are to run with endurance has a finish line. It will be crossed by us, by your grace. You will return. You will judge sinners and you will provide relief to those who you have designated as saints. All this by the grace which comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. See you next week. Prayer cards in the back.